Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. Well, welcome back as we head into hour three. I don't often do this. Uh, once in a while, uh, by request, we'll uh, restate the uh, monologue I have done in the first hour. Uh, this morning, I woke up to the news that Pfizer and BioNTech have submitted an application to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for their updated COVID-19 vaccine to be used as the third shot in the three-dose primary vaccine series for children ages six months through four years. Three shots for COVID for kids under the age of five. Are they kidding? They are not kidding. In Arizona, there have been six COVID deaths of all children under the age of 20 since June. Nationally, there have been 564 COVID deaths throughout the entirety of the year for children under the age of 18. At the same time, in Arizona, over 20 children have died from opioid fentanyl poisonings, three times the number of COVID. Nationally, six times the number of children die from opioid fentanyl poisonings than have from COVID throughout nearly three years of COVID. Meanwhile, in the two most woke cities that happen to also be the most exquisitely ardent and martinet in masking and vaccinations to stop COVID, San Francisco and New York City, the public health departments are putting out and displaying ad campaigns and posters to opioid fentanyl users that if you use, use safely. They, in fact, say such things as don't feel ashamed. If you use, start slow, do it with friends. Exact quotes. Oh, yes, they have no smoking of cigarette signs everywhere and no tolerance for cigarettes or jewels. But for heroin or fentanyl, don't feel shame. Start slow. Do it with friends. I have one positive piece of information from how San Francisco's Department of Public Health is handling things. If you spend some time on their website, you will find this sentence, quote, No COVID-19 vaccine completely prevents all COVID-19 infections, close quote. Okay, then. I suppose we have to adjust to the world where it all depends on what people think the definition of a vaccine is. It used to mean, and on the CDC website until the middle of last year, it did mean, quote, the act of introducing a vaccine in the body to produce immunity to a specific disease, close quote, to produce immunity. Now, the word immunity has been switched at the CDC website to protection. A kiss may still be a kiss, but a vaccine is no longer a vaccine. Because as with nearly everything else we gamble like madmen with, the politics is almost always ahead of the science. The change on the CDC site came shortly after Joe Biden said on a CNN town hall meeting, quote, you're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. If you're vaccinated, you're not going to be hospitalized. You're not going to be in the ICU unit and you're not going to die, close quote. This is the administration that wants boards for dis and misinformation, of course. 
Of course, vaxxed people under the new definition of these vaccines get infected, do get hospitalized and die. It didn't make much of a splash, but early this year, ABC reported that 40% of COVID deaths were among the vaxxed population. And today, it is the majority in some places. We aren't even getting into adverse reactions, which the mainstream media has completely put a damper on. But son of a gun, and I wish I could end that phrase a little differently, we're going to give these things to four-year-olds. Three times. Likely more. As time goes by. How did the lyrics to that song go? It's still the same old story. What is the old story? What I was closing the show with yesterday, the abuse and catastrophizing of children, catastrophizing of children. The incoming number two head of the Democratic caucus in the House of Representatives, Catherine Clark of Massachusetts, said, quote, and let me tell you what it means to be coming in as a different generation By the way, this is from a 59-year-old. Is that a different generation to most understandings? Anyway, this new self-described new generation of leadership just said, quote, I remember my middle child waking up with nightmares over concern around climate change. I've had my family at a movie theater. When the movie stopped, my children immediately felt there must be a shooter in the theater with us, close quote. Climate change has put the fear of an active mass shooter into children's minds. She thinks this is worth talking about and bragging about. Stop and think on that. Climate change is as frightening to children now as an active mass shooting situation. And again, kids, children did not come up with these fears on their own. They didn't self-generate them. They aren't born with them. Adults gave these fears to kids and children. Adults promoted and instantiated them just as adults implanted the idea of race and race shaming to children, and just as adults implanted the idea that kids should be ashamed of their born sex and can change it. Adults made Greta Thunberg famous and Times Person of the Year, just as adults gave kids and children their fright about COVID, even turned children against one another. I imagine the new test will be The new measurement will be how many shots the four- and five-year-olds have to save them from something that is less of a danger to them than drowning. Consider, in the irresponsible COVID-denying state of Florida, more than twice the number of children die from drowning in a given year than all deaths of children from COVID there over nearly three years. One of my saddest memories of the past three years was my 10-year-old nephew visiting me two summers ago and asking me why I thought it was okay not to wear a mask when we were at the outdoor park, as he, of course, felt he had to wear one all the time, including outdoors. You want something frightening? Here's something actually frightening. The Harris Poll finds, quote, a significant majority of Gen Z youth, 75% nationwide, aged 10 to 25, have experienced a mental health-related issue such as anxiety, stress, and or feelings of being overwhelmed as a result of reading, seeing, or hearing news about climate change, close quote. This poll was commissioned by Blue Shield of California. Upon the findings of this nationwide survey, one David Bond of Blue Shield said this, quote, Our warming planet and all that comes with it is literally putting lives at risk. So it's no wonder that it's also causing deep stress among our youth, close quote. Anyone see a problem here? The connection? 
When adults keep telling children the climate is literally, note his use of that word, it's in his quote, literally putting lives at risk, and we then find ourselves surprised or shocked that three-quarters of them have mental declines over it, I kind of want to introduce the letter A to the letter B as if we need some adult version of the electric company or Sesame Street to explain how these logical lines and projections and connections work and lead to one another. Now, the literal thing that this generation of young adults and children should be worried about, should be afraid of, as it is the single greatest risk to their lives, is the thing public health authorities are saying you should not be ashamed of using. And when you do use, start gradually and make sure you do it with friends, you know, in case you overdo it. So one of them can give you a dose of Narcan, hoping that will work. Again, we're building prosthetic limb clinics on the boardwalks of shark-infested waters. We won't kill the sharks. We won't tell you not to swim with the sharks. We will tell you if you do, here's a clinic if you lose your leg, and we'll make it very convenient for you to access that clinic. Old Screwtape tells his nephew, quote, the use of fashions and thought is to distract men from their real dangers. We direct the fashionable outcry of each generation against those vices of which it is in the least danger and fix its approval on the virtue that is nearest the vice, which we are trying to make common. The game is to have them all running around with fire extinguishers whenever there's a flood and all crowding to the side of the boat, which is already nearly gone all under. I think about that old screw tape as my mind goes back to Paul Harvey's 1965 broadcast we played a few days ago titled If I Were the Devil. Some 57 years old, it is eerily predictive with lines such as, quote, to the young, I would whisper the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that what is bad is good and what is good is square. In the ears of the young married, I would whisper that work is debasing. I would caution them not to be extreme in religion, in patriotism or in moral conduct, close quote. Funny to pause on that li- last line, I would caution them not to be extreme in religion or patriotism or moral contra- conduct, given as it surfaced from Paul Harvey just after Barry Goldwater famously said, extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice and moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. I bet Paul Harvey was listening to that. Anyway, Harvey would go on if he were the devil, quote, I'd say idle hands usually work for me. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could, and I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects, but neglect to discipline emotions. Let those run wild. If I were the devil in churches, I'd substitute psychology for religion and deify science. As I say, it's eerie. Of course, so too is his conclusion. Quote, in other words, if I were the devil... I just keep doing what I'm doing, close quote. With all that, I'm really focused on something I saw about Rona McDaniel, the head of the RNC. She's putting a group of 12 folks together to analyze why the GOP did not do better a month ago. A forensic audit of the state of the GOP and GOP campaigning, if you will. Maybe it would have been nice to do that before the election, but in any event, the people she has chosen are a bit of a surprise to me. In the whole group, just one cultural conservative, one-twelfth. If we want to start winning, let's think about what a caller said on this show to me yesterday. 
Those that won their elections spoke to the issues that moms and dads and grandmothers and grandfathers care about. And it's not really the temporary vicissitudes of the economy. It's much bigger than that. It's about things much greater than that. I had a listener email me this morning asking why we don't brand ourselves as the party of common sense, just as the Democrats brand themselves as the party of progressivism. It's a good idea. But what the great challenge is, is that common sense is no longer in the mainstream. Or if it is, it is buried and shamed and shut down in deference to elite and pseudo-sophisticated thought. I have no idea why cultural conservatism is so very much the ugly cousin at the feast. It is, after all, our country and our culture that most animates the concerns of those who tend to be the most worried here and in turn the most active. Our country, our culture, our children, those, it seems to me, are where the battle is. It would be great if we joined it. After all, to continue the previously referenced canticular theme... The fundamental things still apply. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. If you're concerned with stock market volatility, our sponsors at Y-Refi have a great solution. It's an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return not correlated to the stock market. It's a portfolio where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like with no surprises. You can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you choose, and there's no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. Your interest is compounded daily, you're paid monthly, and there are no fees. This is a secure, collateralized portfolio that delivers a high fixed interest rate. How high? Up to ten and a quarter percent. That's right, ten point two five percent. Why Refi is a due diligence approved firm, and you can check them out at investyrefi.com. The word invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or give them a call at eight 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 Y Refi thirty four. That's eight 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 Y Refi thirty four. You won't get a sales pitch. They just like talking about what it is that they do, and letting it speak for itself. They leave the sales part to Larry Elder and. Myself. By the way, on that monologue, I I was listening a little bit to um, Dennis Prager's interview of uh, with De- uh, Victor Davis Hanson today. Bill, did you catch that yet? I know you sometimes catch it a little later, right? You catch it a little later. Um, and it was, uh, I guess, part of his Ultimate Issues segment. Is that what he does in his final hour on Tuesdays, Dennis? The Ultimate Issues hours. That sound right? Um, he had Victor Davis Hanson on, and not really to talk about. You know, current issues or politics in the in in the sense of of, you know, uh, the Biden administration or, you know, DeSantis or Trump or any of that. But but really what's going on in the academy? And, uh, you know, if you missed it, I would highly urge you go back and 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 listen to it or 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 subscribe to uh, PragerTopia so you can listen to it. Um. It was one of the best conversations I've heard between two intellects, public intellects, in a long time. Uh, Dennis and Victor were really at their best, talking about the problems in the university and how that they have emanated outward to what we all kind of think of now or colloquially refer to as the battle for the West or basically the attempt to try and save Western civilization and how far gone it is. Uh, Victor Hansen, uh, Professor Hansen, pegged it 
pegged the beginning of this decline, uh, I think he called it the first wave, uh, to 1987 when uh, protesters at Stanford were uh, led by Jesse Jackson shouting, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go. And Hanson, I had forgotten this, Hanson um, Hansen reminded me, he's absolutely right, or reminded the audience, which reminded me as well, he's absolutely right. He said, the three biggest enemies to Jesse Jackson and those students and the protesters were Alan Bloom, author of Closing of the American Mind, William Bennett, who was the Secretary of Education trying to uh, reinvigorate Western Civ, and Saul Bellow, who was a novelist. Uh, Saul Bellow was a novelist whose major crime was writing the introduction to Alan Bloom's Closing of the American Mind. No one really thought of Saul Bellow as particularly political or even ideological. Western civilization shouldn't be political. It might be philosophical and ideological. No one ever until that time thought Saul Bellow was. It was kind of an interesting thing that he wrote the intro to Alan Bloom's book. The New York Times actually had an editorial on it, The Attack of the Killer Bees. The Killer Bees, Bennett, Bloom, and Bellow. Anyway, uh, interesting uh, how, how long we have been at this fight, but also interesting how much ground we've lost. They were talking about colleges and universities where they don't really teach the classics anymore. Uh, and if you do try to teach the classics, um, if you do try to teach what the field of classics is known as, which is basically ancient Greece and ancient Rome, it's not just English uh, classics, it's Greek and Latin and all that came from those things. Um, if you teach it, um, you're going to be a very lonely professor. Most schools won't hire professors in the classics anymore, which is why Victor Davis Hanson does teach a course in the classics at Hillsdale. Um, but the other interesting thing is you can go to these schools, you can go to these universities, colleges and universities, you can major in English, you can major in English and never have to read a Shakespeare play. This is this is why sometimes we feel, we who I wouldn't say are the younger generation, I would say the next generation, we who are you know maybe a little bit older than forty five these days, maybe speaking an entirely different language to those who are under forty five. It gets me back to what I was thinking about with Rona McDaniel. If we're trying to reach the precinct of voters that we did the least well with, which is the young, the college-aged, it's entirely possible we're not speaking a language they understand. We're not speaking a language they understand because we don't have the same reference points they do. And I think we're going to have an increasingly difficult time of reaching them until we do. You know, we may, we may, we may have fond memories of our college and university educations, or even our self-taught educations in the arts and works of beauty, like, you know, a sonnet from Shakespeare, a poem, a play, or, you know, anything that came out of Western civilization. We may make references to them. And it dawns on me when we do, and we're talking to a 25-year-old or an 18-year-old, they may have no idea what the heck we're talking about. I recall 
about two, three months ago. I was talking to two seniors at a very Tony High School here, and they didn't know who Mark Twain was. We may be in deeper soup than we know. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson show. You know, not only, as I was saying in the previous segment, are we perhaps not able to communicate with references or cultural references with an entirely younger generation or different generation that has been denuded of all we were growing up with, all we were taught growing up with, the beauty of so much in the Western canon that they don't know, you know, the basic uh, literary or historical reference points, never mind the literary for a few moments. Think about the historic reference points. Um, As you know, the New York Times has been hell-bent on changing our history with curricula that has been adopted by thousands of schools, the 1619 Project, um, led by Nicole Hannah-Jones. By the way, Nicole Hannah-Jones, it's interesting, she hasn't really written anything for the New York Times in about two years. Hasn't written anything for the New York Times in two years. That is her employer. And are you aware that there's um, hundreds, uh, excuse me, over a thousand New York Times employees who are about to stage a strike against the New York Times? And she's one of them. She's one of them. She is a she is a potential striker here, um, even though she really doesn't produce anything for them. I don't know if she's more proud to be affiliated with the New York Times or they're more proud. I don't understand how these relationships work, quite honestly. I don't understand why you would be employed at the New York Times if you don't write for the New York Times, unless it's somehow she likes it because, yeah, unless somehow she likes it because it's the New York Times, which gives her credibility, or perhaps the New York Times likes it because... They can say we're doing this revision of history with this woke intersectional quasi scholar. What is it like? What did you say Kramer at the sandwich shop? What was it? What was Kramer at the sandwich shop? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no one knew he was on strike. They ended the strike at the bagels. Was it a bagel store or something like that? I think it was a bagel store. Well, it's that problem combined with the other Kramer problem, which is working for a company he was never hired at and how difficult it was to fire him because he was never originally hired. Anyway, Nicole Hannah-Jones in the New York Times, she's threatening to go on strike. What are they striking at and for at the New York Times? What most people do, what most people do, not enough money. I believe the average uh, union reporter there makes $120,000 if I'm reading this Axios story right, and they would get about a 33000 additional in earnings during the life of their new contract. I realize they're mostly in New York, and 120000 is not the same there as it would be, oh, I don't know, anywhere in, in, a, in, a, in a whole lot of other places, you know, that aren't... D.C. or Los Angeles or San Francisco or something like that. I I get that. But are these guys earning $120,000 a year for the stuff they're putting out? I was in the previous hour talking about, uh, you know, revisiting this debate 
that I thought was so good with Douglas Murray and uh, Matt Taibbi against Malcolm Gladwell and Michelle Goldberg of the New York Times. I've sent it to a few friends. I really do hope you guys watch it because I want you to see what the New York Times is. Michelle Goldberg is an editor at the New York Times. I want you to see what it is by listening to her. You will hear idiocy. I I don't mean this politically. I mean, this is someone who can't complete a coherent thought and repeats herself every time she goes to the microphone over something inane and does not respond to the questions put to her by the other side. She's just missing almost every point and making some of the most lame arguments that I don't think you'd score a 10th grader very well with if they were in a debating class or rhetoric class or debating society. You know, it's it's bringing me to this conclusion that the New York bringing me, I, I guess I've been there. I, you just don't hear a lot of people saying it. The New York Times itself is just lame. It's just gotten really lame. And why people still give it credibility, I mean, at some point, it's got to end, right? At some point, people are going to think of the New York Times as no differently than any other regular outlet or blog, I should hope. I should hope. I just don't know how long it's going to take until we get to that point. But give them more exposure. Give them more exposure from the written page. Put them on microphones. Give them speaking engagements. Have them debate. Have them stand up to scrutiny, and for God's sakes, if they do strike, will anyone know the difference? Maybe they could be replaced with some actual journalists. Doubt it. Well, I'm sorry. There's just no way that we could keep you on. I don't even really work here. (laughs) That's what makes this so difficult. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. If um, if um, if I was hard on the New York Times just a moment ago, I think it's only because it's deserved. You know, um, this debate took place, this debate I was talking about over whether you can trust the mainstream media with Douglas Murray and Matt Taibbi on one side saying no and Michelle Goldberg of the New York Times and Malcolm Gladwell on the other side saying yes, took place uh, November 30th. November 30th, just a few days before the Elon Musk document dump with Matt Taibbi over the Hunter Biden laptop story. And, you know, of course, Gladwell and Goldberg are trying to tell us, no, everything's pretty much okay. You guys are overstating it. And when we err, we correct it. Earlier in the debate, Douglas Murray said, if the best you can say is, you're so good that when you air, you're corrected. That's not a very high standard. But in any event, amazing to me, amazing to me that after this Friday, this past Friday's Elon Musk, Matt Taibbi release, this New York Times got it wrong in, on, in Sunday's paper, their major paper, the biggest circulation paper, uh, it's the biggest, largest circulation edition of the New York Times. They got the basic facts of the Hunter Biden story wrong. Not only didn't they want to cover it in the first place, they still can't cover it. And we've been spoon feeding it to them for how many years now? Two plus. The New York Times Breitbart reports, I verified this, the New York Times falsely claimed Sunday that Hunter Biden's laptop was stolen. 
which was their excuse for, you know, kind of eliding over the story in the first place. Well, we can't deal with stolen property, which, by the way, has never been their excuse or never been a hesitation for them when it comes to classified wartime intelligence. When they got that throughout the Bush administration, time and again, James Risen, Eric Lickblau of the New York Times, Donna Priest of the Washington Post, they got Pulitzers. They got Pulitzers for blowing national security wartime intelligence leaks, which is stolen property, by the way. When you are in receipt of a national security classified piece of intelligence, illegally in receipt of it, you may not be prosecuted because no one feels very good about prosecuting journalists, although a few of them have had to go to jail for this. That is stolen property. That's stolen property, especially when you maintain the anonymity of your source, which they always do. They got Pulitzers for that. Remember the name Khalid Sheikh Mohammed? Are we so far removed in the world from Khalid that we don't know who he is anymore? I hope not. One of the masterminds of 9-11. We still know what that was too, right? Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is uh, in Gitmo, in Guantanamo Bay. You know why he's there? He wouldn't. He wasn't there before 2005. He was there because the New York Times and the Washington Post outed our allies in a national security clearance leak that they reported on, outed our allies who were keeping him in a quiet facility, in an unknown facility abroad. We blew it. Not we, the New York Times and the Washington Post. They blew that, that secret operation out where one of our allies was holding Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. So our allies no longer wanting to be, now that they were outed, subject to terrorist attack and reprisal, we had to take Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. That's why he's at Gitmo. Any event. Um, back to the New York Times. The New York Times falsely claimed Sunday that Hunter Biden's laptop was stolen when in fact it was abandoned at the computer repair shop to which he had taken it and which he had tried and which had tried to contact Hunter Biden as others have been reporting for years citing repair store owner John Paul Mac Isaac Hunter Biden dropped the computer off at the shop on April 12, 2019 to conduct a data recovery uh, uh, John Paul Mac Isaac called Biden the next day, called Hunter Biden the next day to inform him, job done, recovery completed, come pick it up, ready for pickup. But Hunter never did. The laptop was never stolen. That was the pretext the New York Times used for not having to report on the story and saying it couldn't authenticate it and wouldn't go about authenticating stolen. It was never stolen. The fact that this past Sunday they're still saying it is is intellectual crime beyond its journalistic malfeasance beyond peradventure anyway the laptop was never stolen it was abandoned and the store took legal possession of it in accordance with the documents that hunter biden signed himself when dropping off the laptop for repairs he never reported it stolen or missing either however the times is michael gierenbaum reporting on last friday's report by matt taibbi about the internal deliberations at twitter that led to News about the laptop being censored. He wrote this. He wrote this, quote, on Sunday. Mr. Musk and Mr. Taibbi framed the exchange as evidence of rank censorship and pernicious influence by liberals. Many others, even some ardent Twitter critics, were less impressed, saying the exchanges merely showed a group of executives 
earnestly debating how to deal with an unconfirmed news report that was based on information from a stolen laptop. It was never stolen. And by the way, I think this John Paul Mac Isaac, I think he has a new book out or coming out. I think I think I saw he's on a book tour now. Well, maybe it's worth trying to get him on. But by the way, he had made, he had been around for the interviews. I remember the interviews. He said it was not stolen. He showed the documents. The New York Post report, reported the documents that said that Hunter Biden had surrendered the laptop at that point, according to the documents. Never requested it. Didn't respond to phone calls to try and give it back to him. It was never stolen. That was just the pretext not to report on the story. This is really hilarious. The New York Times, my gosh, pernicious influence by liberals. Was it altruistic influence by liberals to censor the story? Were they just trying to save the republic from a bad piece of intelligence or information? You got that. What did, what did John McCain used to say? <laughs> It'll be a cold day in Gila Bend when that's true. I'm Seth Leibson. I'll be right back. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. I I have never really quite understood or uh, there's no real way to know, you know, if how much of the audience is new at any given moment or any given segment or has heard something I've said over and over again to the point that um, it's uh, it's verbose or repetitious. I never do know, but I am guided by something that I know is true in my life and something Dennis Prager says all the time, which is that repetition is the essence of pedagogy. I know it's true in my life. I have had to hear sometimes a lesson or a lecture or even an ad, honestly, 30 or 40 times to finally let it sink in. I don't know. So in that effort, I just I think it's sometimes worth re- um, Redirecting y'all to the journalist's creed. There is one. I've been hard on journalism this hour. Deserve it, I think. Condign, I think. And it's not as if the journalist's creed is so outdated that they don't care about it anymore. It's at the National Press Club. It's emblazoned on the walls of the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. They might as well just take it down. It's not honored and it's not honored in the breach. It's almost as if it's meaningless. It talks about, you can get it, just Google it or whatever, Bing it or, you know, DuckDuckGo it, whatever your favorite search engine is, you'll get it. Came out of the Missouri School of Journalism and uh, it's well worth reading. It's not very long. You can read it in about 90 seconds. But. There's nothing in the mainstream or legacy media that comes close to the standards of the journalist's creed. So the conclusion I'm drawing is, at this point, it's hard to say journalism is even alive anymore. It's certainly not well. I think it's either moribund or dead. And I give no credit or credibility to any of these places anymore, whether it's what they say, all the news that's fit to print, when it's mostly not, and they don't see it that way, or what's at the masthead of the Washington Post, where democracy dies in darkness, where they try and keep us in the dark all the time. 
if democracy dies, it will be because journalism has forgotten its cause, which is to question government, not serve as its press agency. All right. Did a lot today. Thank you for being with us. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. I'm Seth Liebson, and class is dismissed.